0: Last week we concluded a very rich portion of the, of the Gospel of John, verses fifteen to twenty-four, and it took us three weeks to get through. So we went through those three cycles, and uh, it was a really rich, really rich uh, portion. In those verses, uh, Jesus' purpose was to teach his disciples that it's actually good news that he goes away from them, but it didn't seem like it to the disciples. Messianic kingdom is not coming in its worldwide splendor after this first coming of Christ, as they thought. Um, They're losing Christ as their helper and teacher. At least they think so. They're going to be left behind in this hostile world. And so those verses we were looking at, verses 15 to 24, and really the whole upper room discourse, Jesus is teaching them that it's good that he goes away because when he does, what's going to happen? He's going to send the... Holy Spirit. You say, okay, well, why is that better than Christ remaining? How is the gift of the Spirit better than the presence of Christ with his disciples? And we gave two answers to that question last week. Do you remember what they were? The fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, fulfillment of prophecy in what way? Uh, God the Holy Spirit among all Okay, okay. Yep, so there certainly is that expectation in the Old Testament. Good. He would send the Spirit, not just to certain individuals, but to all of them. The, The two that we highlighted last week was that the presence of God, which is what he's been restoring creation towards, the presence of God with his people, is going to be experienced now through the gift of the Spirit in a way greater than it had ever been experienced in the Old Testament. The Spirit, when He comes, will mediate the Father and the Son into the life of a believer so that the believer becomes the actual indwelling place of God. It's an amazing advancement in God's plan. The other reason we gave was that through the gift of the Spirit, disciples will be equipped to continue to carry out Christ's mission as His representative. We're going to talk about that more this morning. So now as we move on, we're, we're going to come this morning to the next two verses. I know we're going really slow. It's really hard not to. Uh, these are just packed with verses. Verses 25 and, and 26. And the questions are these now. So how will the Spirit cause Christ to be manifested to the disciples and not to the world? That's what Jesus just promised in verse 21. And it's going to be experienced as he brings the Father and the Son to dwell with him, but... Just specifically, what will the Spirit do? How will he do that? What will the Spirit do in the lives of disciples, especially the eleven? How will the Spirit equip them to be Christ's representatives in the world? So these two verses zoom into the specific work of the Spirit Jesus just promised. And it tells us how the gift of the Spirit will accomplish what Jesus just promised. So, I've entitled this passage The Unique Ministry, the Unique and Necessary Ministry of the Work of the Holy Spirit. It's in John 14, 25 through through 26. So, you see, Christ's ministry, his mission, his work, has not yet been fully accomplished. Now, you say, what we get has the cross, redemption? it's It's been done. Jesus said, it is finished. And that's true. His work of redemption has been decisively accomplished. It is finished. There's nothing left to be done. But the application of that work still remains to be done. And he is still working as he is the risen and reigning Messiah. He returns to heaven and he continues to work. But he's teaching the disciples here that he's going to do this work, applying now what he's accomplished in the cross through them. As disciples, and he's going to equip them with the Spirit to do that work. It's a unique age that's coming for the disciples. It's what made their work, it's what makes our work, in a sense, greater than the signs that Christ performs. So look back at chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father." How are disciples doing works greater than the signs of Christ? It doesn't mean they're more miraculous. It just means they're being done in this new age in which redemption has been accomplished, the Spirit has been provided, and the work that Christ accomplished being applied and worked out in this age. In the upper room, Jesus is preparing His disciples for this time That's, that's coming. So. Look here first in verse 25, Christ's ministry to disciples while he's on earth. Verse 25, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. So these things points back to what he has just said, whole upper room discourse, but especially verses 15 to 24, what we just looked at. So I think Jesus is is saying a few things here at verse 25. He's first telling them that the purpose that he's telling them all these things is to prepare them for the time that he's away from them. He only has a little while longer that he's going to be with his disciples. And during this time, he wants to spend every moment preparing them for what will be coming. It's crucial hours for the disciples. Their faith is already weak. It's already fragile. They're confused. Nothing's working out the way they expected it to. And Jesus knows this. And so he's preparing them for what they're going to be doing when he leaves. And then he prepares them by protecting them from faltering. I'm not going to spend too much time here. You can look those verses up where Jesus tells the, the purposes for his teaching here. I'll just say these things. He's been speaking the upper room to them, this discourse... So that after the cross, resurrection, and glorification of Christ, two things would happen. The disciples would not be in unbelief as though Christ's mission had failed. That's why he's teaching them these things. And they would not be in ignorance of what their identity and mission should be. So Jesus says, I have said all these things to you while remaining with you. So he's preparing them for the time he's away, and he's protecting them, strengthening them, so that they will not falter. But even this teaching has been confusing for them, right? We've already seen four times the disciples interrupt Jesus to ask him, What are you talking about? We, we don't quite get it. And not only this, but there's much more they need to know, which Christ cannot at this time explain to them. They won't be able to get it until after the cross. And that prepares us for what Jesus is going to say next. He's teaching them and preparing them for the time he's, a, he's away that after the Spirit is given, they would remember this teaching. Maybe strengthen. That's the third thing here. Christ's purpose is to point to the illuminating Spirit. will give you an example. similar but not perfect example is what we do with our children. We teach them the truth about the Bible. Big truths about God and what's happening in the Bible while they are young children. Even though, with their childlike mind, they cannot grasp the fullness of what we're teaching to them. But we teach it to them in the hopes that when they do grow up to be young teenagers and young adults, they will be able to call it to mind and understood clearly what we were teaching them then. And it's similar with what Jesus is doing to the disciples. He's teaching them now. They're not getting it fully, but he's pointing them to the Spirit. When he comes, we'll make it all clear. And that brings us now to really the the, the main focus of this passage in verse 26.
1: While he's with them on earth, he's
0: preparing them, pointing them forward to what they're going to be doing in the work of the Spirit. And now in verse 26, we get the Spirit's ministry to disciples while Christ is in heaven. So let's look at two things. I want to show you the identity of the Spirit and then the ministry of the Spirit. The identity of the of the Spirit. Look at verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus explains the identity of the Spirit in several ways here. He's first the paraclete or the Helper. He says the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls the Spirit, the helper, four times in the upper room. This is the second time. Look back at verse 16 to 17. He said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper. It comes from the Greek word parakletos, or a paraklete. means one who comes alongside. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been the disciple's helper. He has been coming alongside the help of the disciples, teaching them, directing them, sustaining, strengthening them. But he's telling them here that when he goes away, he will send the Spirit to take his place. You see that? The Spirit will do for disciples what Jesus did for them while he was on earth. And the point we're making here is that the Spirit's identity is that he is one who represents and continues Christ's work. Although Christ is going away, the Spirit will take his place and remain with the disciples. So what specifically the Spirit's going to do, we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. But the point here is that he's the helper. He takes Christ's place and continues Christ's work with the disciples. Jesus hasn't left his disciples to carry out his mission alone. He's equipped them with everything they need for this mission. They're left in a hostile world. They're left without Christ's physical presence, but they have the Spirit, and that is more than enough. Next. He has been sent. It says, but the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, has been sent. We're told this over and over in John, that the Spirit is sent. Now, why is that so significant? Why does John and Jesus tell us that so many times? Well, we're told that the Spirit is sent sometimes by Christ, and we're told that the Spirit is sent sometimes by the Father. So which is it? And the answer is yes, right? <laughs> so they both send him, but in unique ways and uh, unique, unique purposes. So the father and son are both involved some way in the specifically of the spirit to the disciples. But why is that important? What's so significant about being sent? And why does it emphasize being sent by the Father and by the Son? Simply put, being sent implies that he's come to accomplish his sender's purpose. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father to do what? To accomplish the Father's purpose. Now the Spirit has been sent by the Father and Christ to accomplish their purpose. You see? In other words, the Spirit does not have his own agenda that he's doing in this age. It's often how he's pictured, especially in charismatic circles. He's just doing his his own thing. He's got what he's he's doing. The Spirit has come in subordination to the Father and the Son. And this is how Christ responded to his Father. He was subordinate to his Father, his Father's purpose and desire. And he always responded in perfect devotion to it. I think here we we get more insight into the life of, of the Trinity, Talked about the Trinity a lot. Yet the perfect equality of all persons—Father, Son, and Spirit—but also the perfect harmony and the perfect unity in roles and purpose of the Godhead. The Father is always initiating, planning, purposing, directing. The Son responds to the Father as He accomplishes and exclusively and exhaustively does everything the Father desired and purposed. And then the Spirit responds to the Father and Son by applying and working out the work the Son accomplished, you see? Each person is fully God and deity and eternality, but they're distinct in the ways they relate to each other, the ways they submit to each other. Yet it's in perfect harmony and unity. That's why Jesus says the Spirit has been sent. He doesn't come in his own terms. He doesn't come to do his own thing. He comes in response to the Father's purpose and the Son's work. So the Spirit has been sent, finally. He's come in Christ's name. He's come in Christ's name. So not only has the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, but he's been sent in Christ's name. So notice again, we have all three members of the Trinity. You said out. The Father will send the Spirit in my name. So what does that mean, to be sent in Christ's name? Well, I think we get a clue again when we think about Jesus coming. Jesus, too, was sent by the Father. And Jesus, too, came in the Father's name. So let me show you a verse. Remember this from back in chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So what did that mean? What would it mean to come in your own name? It's what all false teachers do, is what Jesus is saying here. It means you come on your own authority, you come with your own purpose, and you come for your own glory. You're self-appointed, you're self-directing, and yourself seeking, yourself glorifying. That's what it means to come in your own name. Jesus says, I did not come in my own name. I came in the name of the Father. I was appointed by him. I seek his purposes, and I seek his glory. In other words, Christ came as the Father's perfect representative. And the same is true of the Spirit. Just as Christ was sent in the Father's name, the Spirit is sent in Christ's name. You see He's come as Christ's representative. The Spirit's work and the Spirit's purpose in this age is to carry out Christ's work on earth and to bring glory to Christ. That's what the Spirit's job is. His purpose is to continue Christ's work on earth. What's that? What we said earlier, it's not that Christ's finished work, His work of redemption is lacking in any way other than the application of it. And that's what the Spirit's come to do, to apply and to work out everything Christ has accomplished. And we'll unpack all those things are in further lessons, but just think in conversion. Christ laid his life down for who? For his sheep. And the Spirit comes now to apply the work of Christ. How? By drawing those sheep (laughs) from whom Christ died. By opening their eyes, by awakening them and bringing them to... To Christ. And that's the identity of the Spirit. He's come in submission to the Father and the Son, and He's come as Christ's representative. And He's come to assist the disciples as their helper. So, how? How would He do that? And that's the the next point. That's the ministry. So, we just look at the identity of the Spirit. Now we get the ministry of the Spirit. Just what will the Spirit do for disciples? As the helper who's been sent in Christ's name. What will it look like? Well, First, his role is to empower disciples as he empowered Christ. Not only has the Spirit been sent to apply and carry out Christ's work, he's come to do it through disciples. So the Spirit's not going to be doing Christ's work some other way out there mystically. He's going to do it through disciples. The Spirit rested and remained on Christ throughout His ministry to empower Him as the Messiah, and now that same Spirit is coming to indwell disciples, make them instruments through which Christ's purposes are going to be accomplished. That's true of you, but it's true of the apostles in a unique way. Look at the rest of the, the verse. Back in verse twenty-six. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So his role is to empower disciples. His role also is to mediate the words of Christ to the apostles. The Spirit will teach you all things. See that? Well, what does that mean? Well, the second half of the verse, I think, clarifies it. And bring to your remembrance all. It's that all again that I have said to you. So it's not going to be that the Spirit's going to provide a completely different teaching or revelation than Christ gave. No, rather his main job is going to be to teach them as he brings to remembrance all that Christ had taught them while he was with them. That's what it means to come in Christ's name. The Spirit came not to give his own words, but to mediate Christ's words. Look at the verse again. Bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you see that? The Spirit's job is to bring all of Christ's words to the apostles. Back to remembrance. He came not to give his own words, but Christ's words. And he did it not for his glory, but for the Father's and Christ's glory. It's chapter sixteen, fourteen. He will glorify me, the Spirit. How? For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me just emphasize that this verse is primarily directed towards the 11, the apostles here, with whom Christ is speaking in the upper room. The Spirit does not do this work for you and me in the same way. And one way we know that is by that word remembrance. None of us in here heard the words of Christ directly, right? So we can't have them brought to remembrance. The Spirit does this specifically in this way for the 11, and then later on for the 12th. He enabled them to call it to mind. Before we move on, I just want to note how the ministry of the Spirit here towards the apostles is very similar to his ministry towards Christ. In this verse. Remember, way back in John 3, 34 to 35, it says, For he whom God has sent, Christ, utters the words of God. Well, why? Why does Jesus speak the words of God? For He, that's the Father, gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In other words, the Father gave Christ the full measure of the Spirit more than any Old Testament prophet. Old Testament prophets had some of the Spirit for a temporary time to communicate some of God's Word. The point is God gave the full measure of the Spirit to Christ so that he could give the whole full revelation of God to man, unlike any prophet before. And therefore, the Son spoke the fullness of God's word. He utters the very words of God completely, finally. And the Son spoke the words of God in the same way that same Spirit is given to the apostles. See, see that? The same Spirit that's given to Christ so he could speak the very words of God is now given to the apostles. ...to do the same thing, to pass on the words of Christ. So put it this way. The fullness of God's revelation to man has been given through the Spirit-anointed Son, Christ. And those same words are now passed on through Spirit-anointed apostles. In other words, we have an unbreakable chain of authority here, right? Ultimately, the words of the apostles are the words of the Spirit... Are the words of Christ, are the words of the Father. One and the same. What you do with the words of the Apostles, the New Testament Scriptures, is what you do with the Spirit, is what you do with Christ, is what you do with the Father. Now it's his role to mediate the words of Christ to the Apostles. Next, his role is to clarify and interpret the words of Christ. For the Apostles. Look again. It says, He will teach you all things. and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we're quite aware at this point in John that the disciples have been confused and have misunderstood Christ over and over again in his public ministry. But Jesus says that through the Spirit they'll come to know Christ and his work more clearly and more accurately than they had ever known it before. When they receive the Spirit, they're enabled to know Christ and His work rightly. Spirit comes to glorify Christ by making Christ, His works, and His words known and believed. So let me show you a few examples. Back in chapter 22, he's talking about destroy His temple. They all thought it was talking about the physical temple, but John tells us, when therefore He was raised from the dead, after the resurrection and probably after the gift of the Spirit, His disciples remembered See that? That he had said this, and they believed. They understood it. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. But it was not until the resurrection and Pentecost. Chapter 12, his disciples did not understand these things. Jesus riding it on the donkey in significance at first. But when Jesus was glorified and the Spirit given, they remembered these things had been done about him. Uh, had been written about him and had been done to him and they understood them. They understood it for clarity. That was the gift of the Spirit to remind them and to interpret it to them. John records these misunderstandings often in his his gospel to tell us why the gift of the Spirit was so needed. D. Carson put it this way. He said the Spirit's ministry in this respect was not to bring qualitatively new revelation but to complete, to fill out the revelation brought by Jesus himself. Once the work of Christ had been accomplished, Christ sends the Spirit to help the disciples rightly interpret and understand everything Jesus had taught them and had done and accomplished in his cross. They're empowered by the Spirit to transmit the words of Christ as his witnesses and to do so accurately and clearly. Carson again says, one of the Spirit's principal tasks after Jesus is glorified is to remind the disciples of Jesus' teaching. And thus, in this new situation after the resurrection, to help them grasp its significance and thus to teach them what it meant. That's the gift of the Spirit. That's why it's so needed. So that you can have the scriptures. Disciples would remember the words and they would transmit them accurately, clearly, faithfully. Finally, the role of the Spirit is to make the apostles into authorized representatives of of Christ. So if the Spirit was given to the apostles to make them accurate witnesses to all that Christ accomplished, and it's the same Spirit that was given to Christ to enable Him to speak the words of the Father, then the words of the apostles, the words of New Testament Scripture, are absolutely authoritative. They are on par with the very Word of God. Look over chapter fifteen here, chapter twenty-six. It says, But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, that's what we just saw. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Another indication, he's talking specifically to the eleven. They've been with him from the beginning. They've heard all of it, his teaching. And now they're going to be authoritative witnesses. To the church. We go to a few other places um, to see this authority. First John 4:6, John can say, We the apostles are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to the apostolic word. John 20, 31. These things have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John firmly believes his gospel is as sufficient a basis for your faith in Christ as seeing and hearing Christ for your very self with your own eyes and ears. In fact, I would say it's a more sufficient base because John is giving us inspired commentary. He's giving us inspired explanations of what Christ did and what he said and how to understand it right. Can you imagine if, if all we had were the records of the events and the things that, that Christ said and did, ultimately in the cross and resurrection, but no explanation? Where would we be? I think of the, the movie The Passion of the of the Christ came out a while, while back now. Pretty dramatic movie, probably gave a pretty accurate representation of what it looked like. But did you know there's no explanation of the significance of what Christ accomplished in that movie? You come out being emotionally swept away, feeling bad for Christ, or feeling really caught up in the emotions of the drama? There's no explanation. That's what we'd have if we didn't have this. Might have the records, what it looked like. He died on the cross. So what? We would have no basis for our faith. No firm foundation. Christ died. That's history. We need that. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. And we need both. And we get that through the apostles' writings. So from this passage, we've learned how Christ would equip his disciples through the Spirit to continue his work on on earth as his representative witnesses. So how does this apply to us, this passage? What do we walk away um, taking from this? Does it apply to us? It sounds like it applies to the apostles. What does apply to them significantly, but applies to us in very, very important ways. So let me give you these. If we have time, um, I'll open up for questions, and I think next week we'll do some more uh, questions and and larger overview stuff. So application. Number one, the important doctrine of inspiration must be known and believed. There's much we can say about inspiration. If you want to hear more, I taught this past spring in the equipping class on authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of scripture. Uh, You can get that online, I think. I think it's interesting, though, from this passage, how intimately related the work of the Spirit and the scriptures are. The Spirit produced the scriptures, and the Spirit works primarily through the scriptures. They're inseparable from one another, the gift of the Spirit to the apostles was mainly not for sensational experiences. It was mainly for the composition of Holy Scripture. And the gift of the Spirit to us is to enable us to receive and understand and submit to and be nourished by the Scriptures. That's how the Spirit works. Why? Because it's is to do what? To glorify Christ. And he does that through mediating, clarifying, illuminating Christ's words. I also want to draw your attention to how this passage helps to clarify the method of inspiration. And there's obviously a great mystery there. How did the Spirit inspire people to write the Word of God? What, what did he do? Did he just dictate to them and then they scribbled it down? Uh, we see that in some places in the Bible. But that's not the common method of inspiration. God just dictating and people are... Are writing down what God is saying. There are two things that are at play in biblical inspiration. Number one, the words of the Bible are truly the words of God. Number two, the words of the Bible are truly the words of men, they're human. Men wrote the Bible. Men with unique personalities and gifts and experiences and emotions and circumstances wrote the Bible in a unique way from all those things. I love this painting here. It was painted back in the 1600s, and it's called The Four Evangelists, and it shows them sort of all talking together, looking over sacred documents and thinking together. Obviously, probably didn't happen quite like this. It's probably John in the very front, the youngest of all of them. But it shows the very human element to Scripture. It was written by men. Truly the words of God and truly the words of men. A very human book down to its smallest piece, the very word of, of God. But how does that work? And I think the passage taught us some of that. It's as the Spirit brought Christ's teaching to their remembrance and then clarified, illuminated it, interpreted it for them. The Spirit ensured that everything John wrote, down to the smallest detail, his style, his logic, his terminology, was exactly how God wanted it to be. In other words, the disciples did not just write out verbatim speeches of Christ. But even when they're quoting long portions of Christ's words, like John does over and over, they put it in their own words. And they add interpretations to it. And they structure it artfully and logically. And that doesn't take away from the words of Christ. It actually clarifies and interprets and explains them precisely. I'll give you a few examples here. John sometimes interjects commentary. right? John 20, 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Or John 12. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it's written. John's given us inspired commentary to understand the scriptures. And he also does this in the theology of his book. John has woven together a masterpiece of interrelated doctrines and teachings. It's not just a bullet point list of theological truths. He's woven it together with terminology, keywords, concepts, themes, structure, literature, allusions, all these things. So we get this entire system of thought. And we've been doing that as we've been talking about the Trinity and how that relates to this doctrine and this doctrine and this doctrine. In other words, John wants us to do just what we're doing, going through his gospel and connecting the pieces, thinking through the entirety of it. And that's what he's written. And that's how God intended him to write it. It's a very human book. It's a very divine book. In every one of its parts. Alright, number two. The important doctrine of inspiration must be known and believed. Number two, the promised manifestation of Christ, what he promised back in verse 21, is experienced by all disciples through the Spirit who glorifies Christ. The apostles experienced it through what we've said this morning, what the Spirit did, hoping them write scripture, and we experience it through the inspired testimony of the apostles through the Bible. How? Through the written word, the Spirit. Creates faith, illuminates and strengthens so you may come to trust Christ more and more. And I think next week we're going to unfold that a little bit more how does the Spirit do that? What does that look like in our life? What does He use the Word to, to accomplish in our, in our lives? Well, let me just say here that not only the apostles, but you and I have been given the Spirit to be representative witnesses of Christ. Not to compose Scripture, but to be the means through which it's transmitted. To unbelievers for evangelism, to believers for their sanctification and discipleship. It's the way Christ works in us, the way Christ is applying his work of redemption even now in this world. So, are you filled with the apostolic word? Are you filled with scripture? you internalized it? And, uh, is Christ working through you that by that means? Any questions, comments on this passage? We- it's 1016, about out of time. All right, be chewing on it. Come back next week if you have any questions. I think we're going to take a break. I want to sort of step back and do some of that big picture overview, connecting some of these dots for us, and then answering some some questions. Really significant things in this passage. So let it drive you. Be people of the word. Know it. You need it, and it is absolutely authoritative and true. Pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift. Where would we be without it? Oh, that we'd be people of it and people that know it and eat it and are nourished by it and are sanctified by it and are made fruitful vines by it. Through it, we experience the indwelling presence of God and we know Christ and see him in all his glory. Lord, I ask that you would bless us as we go this week and ask that you would bless us as we go now to this service to hear your word again, that you would illuminate it, cause us to believe it, glorify Christ, cause us to love him more, know him, treasure him, trust him, be nourished by him. And that's your work that you're doing now through this spirit in this age. And we ask that you do it in us, that we would be faithful representatives of you as we go forward. We love you, praise you, give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.